Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to our year-end episode for 2023. We did it. We got through. We made it all the way through another year. I'm so proud of, of all of us. Yes, it only took five years, but we finally got through 2023. <laughs> At least five, maybe ten. <laughs> I don't know how much I've aged over the 2020s so far. But yeah, so like we did uh, at the end of last year, we wanted to celebrate uh, the end of the year by talking about something other than A Song of Ice and Fire for once, uh, just everything we loved, everything we enjoyed uh, across the art world and beyond in 2023. A lot of great stuff. I think we had a lot of great uh, different things to talk about last year, but I think even more so this year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it kind of feel like 2023 was a breaking of like the last decade of pop culture. Um, I feel mm-hmm. like it's the first year where it's not like completely dominated by Star Wars and Marvel at the box office. Um, we're seeing a lot more, you know, it was a big year for like some of our favorite uh, film art- auteurs, uh, Scorsese, Nolan, Greta Gerwig. Um, I think we got like multiple Wes Anderson uh, projects this year. Um, I'm so still it's catching kind up, of been, yeah. Uh, kind of been a treat for all of us who've been following a lot of these directors throughout their careers and getting to see their latest. And for some of them at, at the tail end of their careers, like Hayao Miyazaki and Marty Scorsese, um, it's good to kind of see like what they're doing at this point in their careers after, you know, the last 30 or 40 years of their films that we've seen. Absolutely. Our, our, like our, our 10th final film for Miyazaki. He'll yes. just uh, <laughs> keep retiring and coming out again until he uh, outlives us all. Uh, so I figure might as well just start there. Uh, not Miyazaki, but Scorsese, his American yes, counterpart, I guess. The other cute old man, exactly. Uh, one of the most popular and anticipated movies of the year, Killers of the Flower Moon, I have to say is right there is probably my favorite or second favorite movie of the year. Um, I, I don't even feel like adequate in giving a recap of it, but it's basically um, the tale of the Osage Indians and how the white settlers basically moved in into their land. I think it's Oklahoma circa like 1950 or 1917 through 1930. Um, there is a little bit of a time span uh, told over the course of the movie. Um, but uh, I don't know what else there is to say about this. This is a very... I guess let me start here. A lot of the discourse focused on the length of this movie. It's a three and a half hour movie. And every time a movie's over two and a half hours, it becomes a discourse item here. Um, we don't need to relitigate that. But what I will say is, I feel like this movie is very much deliberate in its pacing. Its length and the speed that it moves is not something to be separated from the content of the story. Um, because this is kind of a long, debilitating process of what white settlers did to uh, the indigenous people of America, and specifically with the Osage tribe here. It wasn't like you know, an instantaneous genocide. It was something that was drawn out. It was methodical. And at times it felt laborious, um, but it was always playing out. And I think that's something that comes through with kind of the slow dying off of the Indians in the story, of the pains that Molly goes through, the illness she has to go through. And it's kind of meant to be draining in that way. Um, And I think that's something that I find rewarding. Me and you talk a lot about form and function meeting in great art. And I think this was just an example of that working perfectly. I totally agree, especially from Molly's perspective, because she isn't getting shot. And there are some uh, horribly quick uh, murders that do happen in this movie, but she's getting poisoned and betrayed. And the kind of the, the slow pit in your stomach dread you feel throughout that movie, I think, is, is reflects her emotional state really well. And yeah, I love what you said about the kind of uh, the inadequacy of grappling with it, because that turns out to be in the movie, too, especially <laughs> as it goes along. And you get to the end, because at the end, 
spoiler, uh, at the very end, after we've had the last kind of confrontation between our characters, we pull back to uh, a radio show being done about the murders, and we see, like, the, the characters wrap up through, like, little voiceovers and, and goofy sound effects that you'd see on an old-timey radio program, or I just always think about, like, when they try to do sound effects on Frasier, and it always goes horribly mm-hmm. wrong. That's what it immediately looked like to me. And then uh, Scorsese himself shows up to deliver um, uh, Molly's obituary. And it's it's really powerful because it it gives you catharsis for what you've gone through, but it also takes it away from you and makes you sit with it and wonder what that catharsis would really look like, especially relative to the people involved. And it makes you realize that for all the, the power and, and beauty and intensity of the movie, what you have been watching, according to the guy who made it, is kind of just that radio show. And it is there is a base level of... of uh, exploitation involved that I think the the filmmakers are re- are wrestling with in the same way uh, with uh, May December, one of my favorite movies of the year. Uh, very different uh, subject matter, but that similar kind of of trying to create a story around around that difficulty, and that's where uh, yeah a lot of the controversy yeah the, the running time stuff was ridiculous even more than it usually is because of, the, of of how much the slowness of this was was on point and just also just how much material there is to cover because mm-hmm, this is a mm-hmm. conspiracy running at, at every level of society and like you were saying levels of different levels of how obvious people were being about it you have people who are like in goodfellas killers coming to you with smiles and taking advantage of people's trust and taking advantage of the system that horrible system where the the native americans were seen as automatically incompetent and couldn't handle their own money so you have to have a white guardian there but also people like leo playing the dumbest man alive <laughs> uh ernest burkhart who uh, is just pretty much told directly to his face to, to, to poison his wife and, and really questions uh, going along otherwise. So it's there's a lot of different elements to cover there. But I think the, the part of the discourse that does interest me is, is the, the question of perspective and whose, tor- whose story is being told here from who and for who. Because it is being told from the perspective of the white characters for the most part. Molly gets some scenes to herself. She gets mm-hmm. some voiceover. But mostly this is the Leo and De Niro show. I get why that throws people off. I get why that seems like, like almost like you're just kind of recreating the the mm-hmm. violence of the story itself. But I think it it fits Scorsese's interest in in sin, which is something as a as a Catholic mm-hmm. he takes really seriously. And I think that his that fascination I think you can see in a lot of his movies with people who know they're doing the wrong thing and do it anyway. I think you can see that in in all of his crime movies, but also something goofier like Shutter Island has that kind of literally psychological mm-hmm. split in his character. And uh, in The Irishman, when you have Robert De Niro's character uh, assassinating Jimmy Hoffa, the man he loves, because his other dad, Joe Pesci, told him to do it. And that that kind of sense of serving two masters that has a kind of a tortured religious aspect to it. And I love, I love that scene near the end when Molly, who's been poisoned by her husband, even though they had a kind of genuine loving romance at first, he, she just straight up asks him, what was in what you gave me? And she's a diabetic, so he's been pretending it's insulin. And he's just, and Leo Furs' brown says insulin. And you just, in that moment, you don't know whether he really realizes he's lying because mm-hmm. you've just been locked so into his perspective. Uh, and he's got that, that, that ability to love his wife, but also love money. And there's, I think there's a lot of history that get you can reflect through that kind of that that tortured split, and uh, and there's so many great little moments. Like uh, there was a great little moment where where Leo's like freaking out and he goes to De Niro like eh, they're they're gonna catch us for killing all these guys and De Niro's telling him to shut up and they're like they're in between some cars 
like a little distance mm-hmm. away from people so they don't get caught. And it, like Leo drags him over there to hide so that, you know, they don't get caught. And then it, it cuts to after De Niro walks off, it cuts to the reverse. And Leo is behind the cars, clearly visible from where <laughs> everyone else is. It's such a small thing, but it's a great little movie magic trick where from one perspective, it looks like they're hiding. And then you get the full reveal like, oh, that's how bad Leo is at this. He can't even hide and talk. Yeah. And I think that's almost a good metaphor for what I hear is the adaptation choice of the story, because I believe the book, which I haven't read, is kind of framed more as a mystery, like who's doing these murders. Um, and that's why Jesse Plemons is riding into town. Um, but rather, this one is very upfront about who's doing it and what. And it's more just about um, kind of, honestly, the voyeurism of it, of watching it happen, watching it unfurl in this slow, methodical way. Uh, one of the movies that it really reminded me of is one of my favorites, Cabaret, the Bob Fosse movie from yeah. the 70s. And I specifically mean it in one way. That's set in late 1920s Germany. Um, and, you know, there, Liza Minnelli and Michael York, I believe, are the two leads. And there's a love story there. And it's backdropped against the rise of Nazi fascism in uh, Berlin and Germany, surrounding areas. I forget which city it was in specifically. But it is something where about, you know, quarter or halfway through the movie, one kid shows up with a Nazi armband on there. Um, And there was a very similar scene in this uh, where there's just kind of like a town march or whatever. And then all of a sudden, here's a group of Ku Klux Klee uh, clan members with one of like the named characters like Molly's lawyer like in front marching with the Ku Klux Klan. And it's a very much you can see like kind of not necessarily the KKK, but all like all of the American bigotries that were piled on top of the indigenous people that oppressed them over the many centuries, like slowly kind of leak into everything. Whereas where we started in a very Osage setting, we ended in a very white settler setting, even though we were still in the same place during, you know, the entire movie. There's a great scene where Robert De Niro watches a newsreel of the Tulsa race massacre um, from 1921. And you can see him kind of like the light bulb going off above his head is like, you know, these people have some ideas. And um, also, it's just great to be able to talk about Robert De Niro like this again. Uh, We were in like that decade and a half of the like (laughs) dirty grandpa era of his career. Um, So it is great that now with this and the Irishman, we really have some of those like classic De Niro roles to kind of also, you know, put an exclamation point on his career, which is, you know, also got to be winding down to some extent. And uh, the last thing, uh, the ending, like you said, was great. Um, I called it walking out of the theater, basically a cinematic land acknowledgement, because that's what it felt like. Like, we basically (laughs) built this on top of your thing, and we're sorry for making money off of it. And I think it was very poignant that it it was the Lucky Strike show upon which uh, they were doing that. And that was a real show that existed. Um, So it's like, because there has to be capitalism involved. Someone has to be making money on this and making money off of carcinogens and something that poisons the people um it couldn't be any more perfect um i don't know i I think it was a powerful movie one of the more most powerful movies i've seen in the last couple years and it's definitely one that's going to kind of stick in your craw your moral craw for years after that um so thank you scorsese san for giving us uh, just another banger and another thing that's going to kind of ruin my psyche for the rest of my life he's on a roll it's a what wolf wall street uh, Silence is a religious mm-hmm. movie with Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver, Hard The Irishman, and, and this. Too. Yeah, those are all all Stone Cold classics, and they're all really different from each other Very. in terms of tone and setting. There's that that great restlessness of an artist trying to cram in as much as he possibly can. And yeah, same with De Niro. De Niro has that that great ability to play a stone cold alien awful people because he's just the most charismatic person alive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So watching that that collision ever since. Um, 
the early Scorsese's, ever since Mean Streets and Taxi Driver, he's been playing with that, where he just uses that charm to get you sucked into someone you realize you shouldn't be getting sucked in by. And this is a great example of that, because, yeah, he watches the Tulsa uh, race riots at one point, and you got to know, like, the whole goal of a guy like this is to avoid something like that ever having to happen on his mm-hmm. watch. He's like, I don't need to do that. I can just fleece them. I can just walk up to them and speak their language and be their friend and take them all. And I don't ever have to do something that's going to end up on the news, although in this case it eventually does. But his goal is to to never have a radio show about him, right? His goal mm-hmm, is to mm-hmm. never be notorious enough for that to be his his legacy. And that's very that's very insidious in a way that I think makes it worth the trade-off because, yeah, in the book you have a much more mystery-oriented structure in a way that privileges Molly's perspective because the first, like, hundred pages of the book are her POV as her family members and and loved ones are dying. And you do lose that when you – because the movie just basically does tell you 20 minutes in, it's those guys. <laughs> those guys are the ones killing everybody. But what you get in, in the trade-off for that, I think, is this this real sick sense of, of betrayal and, and how – Direct violence isn't usually what's happening, but it's being done through bureaucracy and banking rights and marriage. It poisons even even the marriage. And uh, that's something Scorsese always comes back to is that uh, you have these d- domestic relationships that are seen as like a way out of the machine, a way out of just making money and killing people. And they're always tainted by it. Even in this non-crime stuff, something like uh, his adaptation of Age of Innocence has uh, Daniel Day-Lewis trapped in his, his loveless marriage to an owner-writer. And there's a bit in there where he thinks that he realizes all at once that everyone around him has been gossiping about him the whole time. And he describes himself as realizing I'm my marriage is an armed camp. And that <laughs> line really stuck with me for Killers of the Flower Moon, because that's also clearly what Molly feels just in a, a very different way. So, yeah, an in, absolutely incredible movie. If you haven't seen it and you're word thrown off by the length, watch it over a few nights. It's It's definitely worth it. Oh, yeah. And I love the cabaret comparison. That's great, because there's the bit in cabaret where... Uh, you hear the beautiful voice singing, tomorrow belongs to me. I can't sing, but you know what it is. <laughs> and then it's like you're, the camera's panning along and it lands on the singer and it's a Hitler youth. It's a little Nazi guy. And like that, that's this movie in a nutshell. You're getting seduced in before you realize who's doing the seducing. Yeah, that's great. Uh, how about you? You want to hit me with the movie you love this year? Uh, so many. Uh, great year for movies. Uh, I've just been catching up with a couple of that I've been waiting for for a while. I mentioned May, December. The new one from uh, director Todd Haynes, who, as soon as I heard that it was hitting Netflix, I was like, uh-oh. Yes. <laughs> Not just because, you know, streaming and the state of the medium, et cetera, but also because I was like, uh, the discourse on this one is going to be bad. And it has been. Uh, <laughs> not like licorice pizza level bad. I think Todd Haynes is too kind of, uh, he's kind of just too icy and he's a very kind of cerebral kind of director. Someone mm-hmm. like PTA just drops you in with his characters and lets you feel things, whether you're disturbed by that or not. Todd Haynes, so Todd Haynes, he made... His first movie was this short movie called Superstar, in which he told the story of Karen Carpenter, the very sad, brutal story of Karen Carpenter with Barbie dolls. Uh, And then it got like, you know, of course, he couldn't see it anywhere because they got Mattel came down on that hard. Mm -hmm. But definitely an inspo on Greta Gerwig's movie, among others. And he's made uh, made a bunch of movies with Julianne Moore. Uh, They tend to be about people in in domestic situations, uh, you know, stuck in, in frigid lifestyles trying to get out. He's also made a bunch of movies about rock stars. He made Velvet Goldmine about not David Bowie and I'm not there uh, with a bunch of different actors playing Bob Dylan. But yeah, May, December, his latest is about Julianne Moore playing a woman who like uh, 20 years ago was a teacher and slept with her student. And this is, it's the, um, what's that woman's name? Uh, Detroino, Mary Kay Detroino. Do you know this person? She's like a famous case of like a very well publicized case of a oh, middle Mary school Kay teacher. Letourneau. Mary Kay Letourneau. That's, that's the one. The yeah, famous case of a woman sleeping with her student. Uh, this is kind of similar to that. 
But so the movie is, it's like 20 years later, uh, she got out of jail. She married the student she slept with, who is now an adult. They have kids. And now Natalie Portman is showing up to be, uh, she's, she's playing uh, Julianne Moore's character in a, in a movie that's about to come out and wants to kind of research her and live with her and understand her. So very much a, a scenario that a lot of movies uh, pick up on of like the two women. One is blonde, one is brunette. They will become each other and absorb each other like that's Mulholland Drive and Persona and Vertigo. It's like a, that's a bunch of different movies. But um, oh, this one is great because it's just it's very funny and very strange. The music is de- deliberately over the top and everyone's performances are very affected uh, until they start giving way. And I get why it, it got a lot of discourse about the age gap, which it treats as something that was horrible in the past of the characters. And that was just kind of a fact that everyone is dealing with. And the trauma kind of just bubbles to the surface. And Natalie Portman is really good in it. Uh, <laughs> Natalie Portman is, this is a really mean thing to say, but she's really good at playing bad actresses. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, that's like, that's her in Black Swan. And that's also her in this. Like she's playing, I love that she, her her character is on a a terrible-looking show called a Nora's Ark, where she's a doctor that saves a different animal every week, which is an amazing idea for a show. Yeah, it's just is. like a throwaway gag in this, but like, like that's I love that she's like her actress is coming kind of from that background, this kind of tawdry background. So, uh, just really, really great performances. I definitely recommend checking it out. Uh, it's on Netflix. Yeah, sadly, I haven't had a chance to catch this one yet. It's definitely on my list, especially because basically everyone I know has been in love with this movie. Thought it was really. Um, hard hitting, complex, and also will get that laugh or two out of you probably when it's not appropriate to. It's one of those that makes you laugh and that makes you flinch at yourself, which is a, you know, your mileage may vary, but I always love that kind of movie. So I'll just hit another big one. Um, you know, as a Metal Gear Solid fan, I'm always big on the anti-nuclear war uh, kind of uh, storytelling. <laughs> um, nukes kind of went away after 9-11 as the big bad of uh, action movies and stuff. Um, but this year was a big year for uh, nukes, the people who make them, the consequences thereof. Of course, I am talking about Godzilla Minus One, uh, which... <laughs> Uh, was a fantastic movie. Good it setup. Just, Good setup. You had me. You had it me. just came out a couple <laughs> weeks ago, um, and it's still running in theaters. So if you're listening to this and it's playing by you and you're curious, I recommend checking it out. Godzilla is not like a franchise I'm like overly familiar with. I've seen a lot of the big ones. Um, I've not really been a fan of any of the American Godzilla movies I've seen. Um, but the 1954 original is one of my favorite movies. Shin Godzilla about a decade ago from Hideaki Anno is fantastic. But I think this one might even be my favorite, uh, second favorite, the original. It's hard to beat. Um, but it is just a solid fucking story. Um, it's almost a comparable to, I would say, like Top Gun Maverick in that it's not a story that's out there trying to trick you or like put a twist on you in the end. It's just like fundamentally the story that it's about um, gives you a clean character catharsis in the end. Um, it's really dazzlingly made. Um you know, Godzilla production quality has varied over the many decades they've been making them. Um, this one looks fantastic, especially when he lights up to do his atomic breath. Um, they do it so well that when it starts playing in the final act, there's real drama and tension around it because you know what's coming. Um, obviously, it hits all the metaphor beats that Godzilla is known for. The destruction of Japan, the fire bombings that the Allies did, um, the dropping of the nuclear bombs. Um, it also has pretty good take on kind of the imperial martial culture of the Japanese. 
Japanese at the time. Um, you know, the culture surrounding kamikaze pilots. Our main character is a abandoned kamikaze pilot. Um, I don't want to give it too much away because it is new out, but um, it was just like the most fun I had in a theater all year. I wouldn't say fun because a lot of it is sad and depressing, but it is a movie that's always moving, that's always going. Um, and I don't know. I just found it really rewarding, really cathartic. Um, just like go watch it and enjoy yourself. You will not regret it. I haven't seen it yet, but uh, everything I've heard about it makes me so excited. Uh, my yeah, I uh, my Godzilla knowledge is like shamefully patchy. Mm-hmm. There's only bits and pieces. Like there's certain eras I think are interesting, and I just I love the like you're saying just the sheer range of production value in any given era of Godzilla. Mm-hmm. I think is is always fun. Um, but yeah, I'll have to. Hopefully, when I get back from from the holidays, hopefully it'll still be in theaters around me. I definitely want to see it. But yeah, but speaking of of the nuke, obviously this was a this was also the year of Oppenheimer of Chris Nolan's Oppenheimer, which uh, was definitely what I'm very glad I saw in the theater. I think a lot of movies mm-hmm. you can see at home without losing too much necessarily, but there are certain movies that that demand to be seen and, and felt <laughs> on yes. a large scale, and, and and Oppenheimer was one of those for sure. Uh, and I got, to, I just uh, got the, uh, got the nice 4k, uh, ultra HD oh, yes. one at home, Good job. got that disc at home. And I just, uh, I watched it again and being able to focus on kind of the structure of it was really great. Cause it, it comes at you fast on purpose. There's just a lot of information, dueling storylines. You got the, the color stuff following Oppenheimer and his little hearing and his flashbacks and the black and white following Robert Downey years later in his flashbacks. And I was able to kind of just appreciate things, uh, bouncing off each other more and just, um, just be able to appreciate the the kind of the irony with which Oppenheimer gets kind of trapped in this this uh, show trial, and the same thing happens to Robert Downey's character Louis Strauss uh, a few years later, and how you see kind of Oppenheimer kind of uh, taking it on himself, and kind of the martyrdom of his trial is how he uh, gets that guilt out. Because there's that great scene with with uh, with Harry Truman. When Oppenheimer goes in and says he has blood on his hands and Truman, as he apparently did in real life, kind of just makes fun of him with a handkerchief and says, you think they care? And Hiroshima and Nagasaki, who built the bomb, they care who dropped it. The Hiroshima isn't about you. And it's just a, after all the buildup of it, it's just a great moment for, for him of not even, not even being good enough to feel the guilt he feels. Like you're not even, you're not even worthy of feeling that way. And so on rewatch, I was like, he, I got the sense of like his, uh, his wife Kitty tells him at one point, why are you just accepting this, this show trial? Why are you accepting this humiliation? Why don't you fight back? And I got the sense like this is, this is how he's dealing with the fact that he's not even good enough to feel his guilt. He's just letting himself be hurt because he hopes, he hopes somehow that makes up for what he did. So on, in theaters, I was just kind of focused on just the style and just keeping up with what was happening. But it's, it works really on a kind of on a more a more atomic level, you could say, just yeah. on, a, on a minute level of character. It, yeah, it, it really does. It works really well. Absolutely. And I love all the Nolan-esque uh, parts of this film, but I do love that it is just one of those three-hour men in suits just kind of talking, hashing it out, trials, all that kind of stuff. Um, kind of like JFK in a way. I feel like that's like a kin to this movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Agreed. Uh, w- one thing I really liked on top of all the things you mentioned is that um, it has a nice little interplay between like the atomic and quantum theories that are in this uh, narrative itself with kind of like the structure of the story. Like I think about uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer talking about how atoms are mostly empty space and just like random little particles bouncing off each other. It's a very apt way to describe his social circle um, because he is also very empty and just kind of bouncing off a bunch of people. The difference between fusion and 
and fission, the two kind of plot lines or whatever. One is like people coming together, you know, particles coming together to form something. One is bombarding particles with shit. Um, and that's basically what's happening in the two, the dual trials that are happening. Um, so it has a really good sense of what it is. Uh, Nolan also kicked Hans Zimmer to the side and brought, uh, brought in Ludwig Gorenson, who had been scoring, uh, like Mandalorian and Black Panther and stuff like that. I thought and he had new a new girl of all, of all things. I was seeing the credits to new that. girl. I'm like, I know that name. <laughs> What a career. Uh, yeah, but uh, he, he turned in a wonderful, wonderful score that I've listened to quite a bit. Um, just a fucking solid movie. And I think it's just kind of encouraging to see a movie like this get the kind of treatment it did, both in terms of like advertising and actually pushing. like, hey, go see this movie in theaters. And that's because, you know, it was kind of married to this other movie that was coming out on the same day as it. Um, but then helped. also seeing um, some actual success for a movie like this and Pillars of the Flower Moon. I know it did wasn't as like commercially successful and... We don't need to get into the box office. I don't usually really care about that. But it Same. is encouraging to see a movie like Oppenheimer almost break a billion dollars. Um, that's almost unheard of in the age of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Agreed. And yeah, I loved that. I think you made a great point about how much of the the structure is reflecting uh, what they're talking about and just how their minds work. It was one of those movies that you get sense this is really reflecting how the, the character thinks and how they're looking back or just like when they're... They got the bowl full of marbles to reflect how much mm -hmm. plutonium they got. It's like, that's all, that's what the movie is to. You're just dropping things in the bowl and just building it all up. And uh, and it's great because it's, it's, it's got so many different things. It's a great movie in a lot of different ways. There's great just visually abstract stuff. There's just bits where you're watching uh, montages and the music, you know, gets your heart racing. But then there's just, yeah, straight up dialogue scenes, direct uh, discussions of, of politics and history. And the whole cast is great. Every time a guy pops up every 20 minutes, there's, I know that guy. Um, maybe my favorite example, even though I don't, you know, hate him as a person, uh, Casey Affleck mm -hmm. is oddly terrifyingly good in this. And like the one scene he gets as uh, Lieutenant Colonel Pash, I think is his name, like yep. this virulently anti-communist Russian guy who is even more terrifying in the, uh, the biography of Oppenheimer they based this on. There's a lot more of him and he's, he's scary. But they capture this like this absolute tranquil quality where like he's a guy who will he will he will rip your throat out if he thinks you're a communist. But he's just going to look at you and talk to you until he does that. And there's a great bit in the movie where Oppenheimer admits to Matt Damon, his army uh, handler overseer guy, that he mentioned to Colonel Pash that we really ought to be sharing information with the Russians. And you see this look on Matt Damon's face like you you told Colonel Nutjob Q commie killer what <laughs> you told him what. So yeah, even if you're just uh, if you're just watching it for the dudes rock aspects, there's there's a uh, there's a lot of great dudes in it. Yeah, it's a really deep bench. You got like Alden mm -hmm. Einreich, whoever played Han Solo in that Solo movie. You have I'm glad Rami he got a job. Yeah, yeah, and a good one. Uh, Rami Malek, Matthew Modine, um, Jason I didn't, Clark. Yeah, I didn't even know Josh Hartnett was like still doing movies, and here he is like. <laughs> He's doing a good role. job. Yeah, he's great. I fr and he was in uh, Pearl Harbor like 20 years ago. So he's kind God, of like... I remember that, yeah. To be around still after that yeah, is an accomplishment. Same topic, right? The Pacific Theater of the War oh, as well. So He's grown up. He's grown up <laughs> since he was a floppy-haired pilot. I can't Pearl Harbor. I think I walked... I think I slept that through that one. That was a bad movie. <laughs> that was... Michael, people, you know, uh, give Michael Bay shit for the Transformers movies, understandably. But honestly, Pearl Harbor is Michael Bay's mm -hmm. low point. Let's in, in a more, uh, let's see, in a more kind of a, a action direction, uh, I really liked the latest Mission Impossible. I'm a mm -hmm. sucker for those. I'm a big fan of those movies. It didn't do super well in the box office because it was going up against uh, Barbenheimer. Uh, like, I heard that it was originally supposed to go up against Indiana Jones 5, but they were like, no, 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 that's going to make a lot of money. That's going to make a lot of money. Let's put it up against Barbie and Oppenheimer. 
dumbest yeah. decision of the year since Indiana Jones 5, which I did not see, made very little money. Mission Impossible probably would have dominated. But yeah, and, and box office talk there. Mission Impossible uh, 7, Dead Reckoning Part 1, <laughs> is like you know, like the first Dune. It's, it's definitely only half a movie, but it's very sturdy and solid and dependable in the way the Mission Impossible movies are. You know, it's just like getting getting like a very a very functional lunch from your favorite cafe. They're not the the most like uh, stylish or or um distinct movies in the world anymore. They used to have like Brian De Palma and John Woo right. and they were like the, the Tom Cruise Christopher McQuarrie machine, but very solid action and a really kind of fun silly freewheeling story about Tom Cruise fighting uh AI slash John Milton's Satan <laughs> slash God, there's a lot of uh, like pretty pretentious mythological stuff thrown in there, but the the thrill of Tom Cruise fighting an all powerful robot entity is one that I am admittedly there for. Even if if even if no one else shows up to Mission Impossible movies, I will be the last person in those chairs waiting for Tom Cruise to die on camera. Oh, I am the same. I loved uh, the new Mission Impossible. Uh, the previous one, Mission Impossible Fallout, is like one of my favorite movies, mm-hmm. and it's got one of the most generic ass plots in the world. Like, there's That's nothing, true. nothing interesting about the plot whatsoever. However, it has like six like set pieces that will put any action movies like crown jewel to shame, and it has like six of them in the movie. And I was like, how are they going to top that? And they didn't even try. They actually went, not not that they didn't try. There are some death-defying stunts in this movie, but they took kind of a different tact with this one because um, it felt more inspired less by, like, say, James Bond and more by Buster Keaton because um, there is just a lot of great, like, slapstick stunt work in here. Um, and I also felt like it took cues from uh, Hayao Miyazaki's Castle of Cagli Ostro. It's a Lupin the Third movie. Um, there's a car chase with like a Volkswagen Beetle that's almost mimicked, you know, shot for shot at points in this movie. Um, there's just a lot of goofy stuff, like something like uh, the final train sequence where they're in kind of a train car that's like uh, falling off a cliff and they're all hanging on. It almost feels like a rotating set from the Keaton or Charlie Chaplin days. Um, yeah. It was a very, very funny movie movie even like the set piece stunt that they built um all the marketing around you know tom cruise driving a motorcycle off the cliff all of that is just a setup for a joke and it's great it's so great um and i i'm a big fan of Haley atwell i was happy to see her get some work outside of the marvel movies um likewise palm clementoff who played paris mm-hmm. um she's mantis in the guardians of the galaxy movies i'll just throw in here i liked guardians of the galaxy 3 not worthy enough to talk about more on this episode oh, right but, that was this year i also watched that but, I, but <laughs> for some reason i forgot that was this year that's true but um uh, she was great as paris who i believe mm-hmm. is one of the or is a quote-unquote original character from mission impossible but it's not like anyone really cares about that anymore right um, but yeah <laughs> I had a lot of fun that I go to those movies for a very specific thing to see Tom Cruise do insane shit. And I got to move with a movie with Tom Cruise doing insane shit. Also a lot of great, like sleight of hand work as well. It's not all just, uh, you know, big stunts and driving motorcycles. There's a lot of little things like handoffs and putting things in pockets. Um, almost, you know, kind of paying homage to like John Le Carre spy novels, as opposed to Ian Fleming spy stories. And that hint of, uh, yeah, that James Bond uh, spy stuff is always there to to counteract just the pure go-ahead chase scenes. Mm-hmm. And that's been there since the, you know, if you go back to the 60s show, uh, that that was what that was all about. But then, yeah, I remember when the, the first movie came out, people were complaining about how inauthentic it was to the series. But no one has cared ever since. These these movies are their own thing. And, yeah, I love what you said about that. The big, the big showstopper set piece is just to set up. There's not a, even though... I was about to say there's not a lot of ego in these movies. And I'm like, no, actually, <laughs> the Mission Impossible movies are just a vanity project for Tom Cruise at this point. They are just pure ego. But 
within them as movies, they're not very egotistical. Mm-hmm. Everything is for the purpose of the scene. And I, I admire that about that. That's what I liked about Fallout, too. Because, yeah, Fallout was just a, as a script is just get to the next set piece, get to the next set piece, get to the next set piece. But you're never bored. And they handle each one uh, really well. So I will, I will also be there for Mission Impossible 8, Dead Reckoning, Part 2, this time on a submarine, I think is the working title. <laughs> I Something think it's like set the Guinness record for most punctuation in a movie title already. So. We'll get there. They're just not letting that go these days. They turn Now Furiosa is a Mad Max story or whatever it is, mm-hmm. colon Furiosa. Like we wouldn't know what that is from the poster and the title. <laughs> right, right. I'm going to look at that and wonder, I guess that's a new Spider-Man movie. Oh, it's Mad Max. Okay, good. Whew. I was worried for a second there. Uh, the last movie I'll hit you with uh, for now is uh, The Boy and the Heron, uh, mm-hmm. which is uh, Hayao Miyazaki's latest. In fact, I think it just came out a week and a half ago in the United States. I'm a big Miyazaki fan. I've seen all his films. Um, I basically love all his films. Uh, <laughs> they're all bangers to me. Um, Boy and the Heron is no exception. Um, I saw the subversion, so I did not get to hear Robert Pattinson's insane take on the Heron voice, but um, I'm pretty sure the one I got in the Japanese language is equally insane. Um, but it's really hard for me to talk about Miyazaki movies. Um, they also tend to have a lot of discourse about them and like Japanese modes of storytelling. And I just like to think of it as he is someone that paints with heavy brushes and lighter brushes, and not every theme or topic that he touches on in his stories is going to be using that heavy brush. Yeah, it's interesting to me how that that has cropped up in conversation over the couple of the last over a couple of the last Miyazaki movies. Uh, maybe just because I watched so his stuff over and over again when I was a kid. I had them uh, Totoro VHS just worn out. That was my favorite mm-hmm. movie as a kid. I remember when Spirited Away came out and was briefly the the biggest thing on this side of the pond. And um, maybe it's just because I'm so used to them, but I feel like he just locks into to childhood logic really well. And mm-hmm. I think there are. A lot of cultural implications, some of which I pick up on, some of which I don't, and just read about from people who know more. But for me, the the universal aspects or the reasons his his movies cross over so well, I think, is he locks into some some pre rational thoughts and feelings in a way that makes his movies really difficult to describe. And the boy in the heron is really difficult to describe. Mm-hmm. I saw it, I loved it. I did see the other uh, dub version. I would not have been able to tell us Robert Pattinson if I didn't know. So he did a great job. Definitely, you know, you can describe it in vague emotional terms as a journey of self-reconciliation and understanding parts of your family and your history. But just the watching it with a crowd and feeling just the vivid surges of feeling when like, you know, the parakeets would show up with a machete and everyone goes, oh, they're going to try to eat him. It's like, it's like that's very specific feeling from the crowd. Not, oh, no, they're going to eat him. But, oh, here we go. Yeah. They're going to eat him like that. Those kind of moments and feelings are what linger for me about Miyazaki more than more than anything to do with plot structure. Although I think he has made uh, a movie like Princess Mononoke that I think has a very classical, mm-hmm. well-done structure to it. I think he can. he's d- done it all. Because like, I think he has like definitely like main thrust to his story, but like all throughout this, it's all also set like during the wartime in Japan. I guess it's I, I'm talking all about wartime in Japan this uh, episode. <laughs> That's the um, theme. Um, but like like the dad character in that, who's a very minor character, is not part of the main narrative. But like he's in the back, always like working at the war factory, bringing home these fighter plane cockpits to his house. He's literally, and you know, the fighter plane cockpits look like cages. He's literally bringing the cage that is the war back to his home. Um, and you can tell that he's probably involved in the imperial 
real machine, even though he's not spotlighted in any way um, as probably being like a big wig at the like war factory. Um, but <laughs> Pretty big wheel down at the war factory. <laughs> exactly. He's uh, Kirk Van Hooten, but <laughs> in uh, Miyazaki form. Um, but, I you would know, watch that. Mm-hmm. a lot of uh, Miyazaki has, you know, the children protagonists. You know, you can make a lot of comparisons both visually and character wise to Miyazaki's previous uh, protagonists, whether it's someone that's more heroic, like uh, Ashitaka from Princess Mononoke or the protagonist from Castle in the Sky. Like you can see even like Sen from Spirited Away, you can see all his protagonists in these kind of children characters to some degree. Um, and then they go on a journey that's about them wrestling with, you know, their own lives. Um, you can see Miyazaki wrestling with his own legacy, possibly with his relationship with the son Goro. Um, those are things I th- like I, I'm interested in those things. I think Miyazaki handles them really well. Sometimes I feel like the critical sphere can get very reductive and like this is this movie is about his relationship with Goro which no (laughs) like yeah like I'm sure he's commenting on that a little bit but it's equally as part about that as it is the legacy of imperial Japan or post-war Japan or the many other things that are in play in his in this Um, and I think the real thing we go to Miyazaki films for is the weird little guys Uh, you mentioned the parakeets they are fantastic um my crowd was hooting and hollering every time they pulled out a sharp weapon uh, and like started sharpening it um and there's like these little marwas or waras um i forget but they're just like these little white ghost guys that remind yes. me of a little booze from mario games uh-huh. um, but they're super cute adorable um in the ascent to the sky there's like a whole suite of sweet little granny characters in this um and no one does old ladies like Miyazaki, um, whether it's like Sophie from Howl's Moving Castle or the gra- the nannies in uh, Spirited Away, the two older witches. Um, he does older women incredibly well, um, and they were just delightful in this. Like you say, it's really hard to describe this movie or as are many Miyazaki movies, but it is wonderful. And if you get a chance to really, you know, go to a theater and see this, um, it is wonderful to uh, watch it in a crowd. This is the first like new Miyazaki movie I've seen in a theater. Um, I've gone to Phantom. Uh, fathom events to see like princess mononoke and spirited away but usually that's like a quarter filled theater but to be in like a packed theater on opening night with people who are there to see a miyazaki film um that was something truly special and i'm glad i was able to cross that off the list it's a communal experience i think because i remember not only these movies but i remember watching these movies with other people we had one of our friends uh, elena in town recently and she's just getting into miyazaki so we watched ponyo for the first time with her and spirited away and there's just a, obviously, you can have a great time watching any movie with anybody, but there's just a palpable delight in his movies and introducing them and passing them on and sharing them, which I think is, uh, I think has something to do with the movies themselves and the kind of the emotions that are being inspired for the characters. And I think, uh, I think it's also the critical reaction you're talking about, I think in part is just like a possessiveness. Like some people have, have artists they really love mm-hmm. and just want them to be theirs. But I think it's also, a a desire to explain something to desire to explain a style that is so strong it seems to demand some kind of explanation that's a great way to put it and uh what it reminds me of is how a lot of people treat wes anderson uh (laughs) who also had a movie out this year uh asteroid city and it's like it's it's become its own joke not only have, have the conversations about wes anderson become the same each time but pointing that out has become cliched at this point too it's it's just every time we have the same conversation about his his intense, uh, noticeable, obvious style, how that impacts performance and your emotional uh, reaction to it. And I think not only is that boring at this point, but it, it misses how his movies, as he's gone along, have increasingly become about that and about 
different mechanisms of detachment and engagement and elements of his movies that that make you very aware that you are watching a movie like asteroid city is a a play within a radio show within a movie Mm -hmm. and just layers of performance that the actors are involved in so a lot of things that are meant to make you uh, appreciate it or admire it more than love it and then it, then he'll kick you in the gut with something that a character is really wrestling with or just a, a striking way a scene is done or something that it seems mysterious or weird or funny or goofy and that the the way he jerks you in and out of that emotional state again like Miyazaki that process I think is more important than the plot summary or has the character gone through a change maybe but like the the mo- the, the main thing is feeling yourself getting jerked in and out of those feelings and he's he's so good at that and asteroid city was was a delight i think and it's if i told you what what it's about it that wouldn't explain why it's delightful i think you have to you have to get into that structure yeah no it was one of my favorite movies of the year too um i love wes anderson um and i am equally tired of the discussions <laughs> that we have of it uh, my friend lauren has this great tweet is like oh wes anderson is making another highly stylized movie with a bunch of actors i love this sucks for some reason. <laughs> um, I'm so tired of this, apparently. Yes. Um, and I love that, like, uh, Asteroid City has, like, it's a very unique co- color palette. Not, like, unique colors, but, like, a very pastel kind of feel to it that you just don't see in a lot of movies. Not even, like, you know, Wes Anderson's other bright colored movies. It's very distinct from them. Um, like you say, the artifice of storytelling is on display because it goes through the layers of this is a television show of a stage play or a radio broadcast of a stage play. So, and some of the, you know, those layers between them are, you know, kind of breaking down or bending. Um, and I just, you know, as much as there's a message to it, I loved it. Um, you know, the meaning of life, maybe there is one. Um, it's not even like, what is the meaning of life or what's the point of it? It's just like, maybe there is one. Um, I love that even with the stacked cast that are like build on it, there's still always a bunch of surprises. Like the guy who's underneath the alien suit, uh, you know, is another big name. Um, I, I'll not spoil it for anyone, but, um, I think it's great. And I think it's a movie that's really in conversation with, it's in conversation with what it's about, which is kind of an interesting place for a movie to be. A movie that is a stage play on a radio broadcast, um, really kind of hitting all the different mediums that are in play, especially for the time, uh, what, like 1950s-ish where this is set. You know, radio uh, stage plays were a much bigger thing. Um, and that also makes it a little bit akin to the ending of Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, so, I've, you know, we're seeing all these little connections to these movies and not like Marvel Cinematic Universe connections, but like we see the theme of like nuclear weaponry coming back we see uh you know kind of styles and you know interacting with certain modes of uh, entertainment that are not as popular anymore um though that also kind of reared its head even barbie has some of that in the way that it constructed sets in a very classical fashion um you know you know like movies would be made in the 50s and 60s as opposed to either you know big green screen or you know on set location shooting kind of stuff yeah i love it in movies when different kind of you see clever filmmakers have different kinds of technology or eras rub up against each other. Like that was a lot of the fun of Barbie for me was watching like script wise. You have your, your modern studio comedy playing out on this set that looks like it's from the fifties or the sixties. And that kind of, uh, again, that disjunction, like I was talking about asteroid city is what makes it really interesting. And I love that. Uh, I love that work, that, that, uh, thread in Wes Anderson's work where he's asking you why it is you, you need things to be real and realistic mm-hmm. to be invested in them. Uh, that was you see that in running through Grand Budapest Hotel. You see that in his uh, his animated movies mm-hmm. as well. He just kind of goes goes for it literally and turns them into puppets, and they they work on you anyway, which I think is is kind of the point. This wasn't a big year for television for me. 
Um, I will say, you know, I love the last season of Succession, but I podcasted about it with Emily over at uh, My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Yes, indeed. And Emmett also joined the Girls Gone Canon or one of the girls of Girls Gone Canon, his roommate. This is true. Um, to talk about it as well. Um, so we'll just point you to those episodes if you're interested in our Succession thoughts. They are many <laughs> and diverse. Um, for me, uh, the two series um, that I really got into this year, they're both continuations of series from years past. Um, one was on a revival that would be Justified, City Primeval. Um, Justified is the series um, that made Timothy Oliphant and Walt- Walton Goggins household names um, based on a series of short stories by... Elmore Leonard or Leonard Elmore. I, I always Elmore Leonard, yes, indeed. That's it, Elmore Leonard, that's it. Um, and so, and that's been off the air since you know maybe six, seven years at this point. Um, but they wanted to do a revival season, um, and I thought it was pretty successful. City Primeval is just kind of a straight modernized adaptation of one of those classic Leonard short stories. Justified started back in 2010, 2011, and kind of where TV was there, like how it looked, how it was shot. Um, Not everything was shot digitally at that point and all that versus how television looks now in 2023 is different. And Justified City Primeval doesn't try to recreate what 2011 Justified looks like. It's very much looks like any other show you'd see on HBO and um, AMC or FX or whatever it might be. Um, And I think they did a nice job of kind of like modernizing that aesthetic. So it still felt like Raylan Givens walking in with his big cowboy hat and the biggest dick in the city. Um, But it did feel like he was entering a new setting and new city, which he was, um, because a lot of uh, the original series is set in Kentucky. This is all set in Detroit. They bring in Boyd Holbrook, uh, who uh, a lot of people might know from the Sandman Netflix adaptation or Logan, the Wolverine movie from 2017. Um, He's fantastic as, you know, the big bad of the series. I don't want to spoil it because it has a pretty killer stinger at the end um, that calls back to the series as a whole. But I thought it was just a great like season of kind of like that hard-boiled detective-style cop thriller. Um, Justified's always been good about not leaning into copaganda kind of stuff. Um, and that it also helps when you're you know, lead cop character just shoots first. And that's the thing that everyone yells at him about. Like, you can't do that. (laughs) Um, So it kind of, maybe it has its cake and eat it too. Um, But ultimately, it was a very satisfying, like, return to the characters of Justified, mainly Raylan, but other characters do pop up. Um, And it was just just a solid kind of crime detective story that, you know, Elmore Leonard got famous making. And if you have, you know, an interest in that kind of story, I think you can dig into this even without having watched any of Justified previous to this. Yeah, that's great. I haven't caught up on it yet because I want to do a Justified rewatch at some point because mm-hmm. I haven't seen it since it was on. Uh, and I'm sure there's a lot of forgotten big, uh, big Timothy Oliphant fan. And uh, yeah, I'm glad it translated well to a to a new a new setting because that was so much of a mm-hmm. kind of made the ambience of the of the original series. So I'm glad I was able to to tr- to change. And yeah, I've forgotten. Yeah, the show's that old now. That's true. Shows uh, even 10, 15 years ago look look totally so different. different. That's. Yeah, that's a, that's a hard bridge to a hard gap to bridge. A uh, show I loved uh, this year, my favorite show last year, as I covered when we talked about uh, everything at the end of last year. I talked about Irma Vep, the show that was uh, based in part on the French movie from the '90s, and this year another um, mini series based on a movie I love, uh, Dead Ringers. The original is the '80s movie from David Cronenberg, where uh, Jeremy Irons plays twin gynecologists who. Uh, <laughs> 
Right, beautiful. Already immediately sold. What, what more could you ask for from a movie than Jeremy Irons as twin gynecologists <laughs> uh, who have uh, interesting ideas about sex? Uh, the opening scene when they're kids is they're talking about how much they, uh, they, they wish they were a different species so they wouldn't have to have sex. They could just uh, fertilize some eggs. And then they ask a neighborhood girl, would you have sex with us in our bathtub? It's for an experiment. So that's that sets up that movie, basically. <laughs> it's a, yeah, Jeremy Irons is twin gynecologists who are much, much, much too attached to each other. And uh, like there's the, the, the bold one who will go out and seduce women. And then when he's bored with them, he'll let uh, the shyer one uh, date them. And they're pretending they're the same guy. So they kind of torment people that way. And then they meet one they actually fall in love with. And they start turning on each other. But so the show is a similar premise, but it's Rachel Weisz. I've always loved her, uh, loved her from a young age when I saw her uh, on The Mummy and fell in love, of course, as <laughs> like a whole generation did. did. <laughs> uh, and she's so good in this. She has this, uh, just this feral quality I love that I also love in uh, uh, Kristen Stewart. Uh, that that quality of of someone who looks like they're just gonna bite you at any moment, <laughs> always love that, and uh, it's just a, an intense performance as as both gynecologists trying to uh, open a fertility clinic and play the politics involved and kiss up to the right people, but they get uh, tired of how how nakedly self serving it is and how uninterested in, in women people are, and they start dating away from each other. Uh, really great, really gory, uh, really uh, a fun mix of kind of campy, over-the-top stuff and then much more serious, dramatic stuff. And Rachel Weisz plays plays both of those really well. So I think it's on Prime. Yes, it's on Prime. So I definitely recommend that to everyone. Uh, definitely um, definitely be aware, though, you will, you will watch uh, Caesarean Sections in full detail. So if that's not your thing, that's coming in the first episode. So be ready. Very good to know. I have not. I'm not familiar with either the show or the film that it's based on. But now, now it is on my radar. So when I'm in the mood for a C-section, I will uh, throw it on. <laughs> exactly, a very specific mood. The movie is one of Cronenberg's less body horror things. So if you're not into the direct stuff, uh, it's one of his more just kind of dramatic, sad ones. So I definitely recommend that to people. Uh, the other TV show I want to talk about real briefly is Castlevania Nocturne. Um, mm-hmm. This is an anime series that's on Netflix. Uh, the original Castlevania series ran for four seasons. Um, that followed Trevor Belmont, uh, who is like one of the lead characters of the Castlevania video games. Um, right around like the end of the 16th century, that's when that was said. Fighting Dracula, fighting death, all good stuff. Richard Armitage is uh, Trevor. Um, it's a really cool show. I'd recommend checking it out. Um, or the original, the first run of the series. Um, this season, uh, Castlevania Nocturne is a 300-year time jump at the new set of characters for the most part. Um, this is Richter Belmont and uh, very appealing to me. It is set during the French Revolution, um, which is just a historical period I'm really interested in. And it's a great setting for doing vampire shit, mm-hmm. um, especially because they are making um, the aristocrats in the Vendée, which was a conservative right leaning part during the French Revolution um, to make them all vampires is great. Um, the church is involved um, and the church was very involved with the revolution on both sides um, of it, both, you know, for revolution and against it um the abbot uh the you know leader of the church in it is voiced by our friend richard dormer who played Beric dondarian in game yes, of thrones indeed. um he is doing a very solid french accent for my untrained eyes doing it Good really great him. but you can you can still hear Beric in there quite a bit uh-huh. um and i will give a, a little spoiler um another major game of thrones character does a voice of uh an older belmont who shows up later in this 
a series. I won't tell you who it is. Um, he unfortunately does not say the word Khaleesi, but you can uh, kind of get where that's going. My favorite voice, of when course. He, when he gets in there, um, it's cooking. I think the series is great. I think it's a great build on um, the previous Castlevania series. And on top of doing the French Revolution, um, the French Revolution was concurrent with the Haitian Revolution, which is the only known revolution where actual slaves overthrew their masters and took control of the state of the levers of power and kept it. Um, and there are Haitian revolutionaries who come to France. Um, they're also wizards and vampire hunters, of course. Um, but that all um, kind of goes into the story. And I think it's really well done. Um, and the whole night creatures, these are like the kind of like the jobbers, the orcs of the bad guys. Um, they do a fun storyline with that because they are basically slaves in their own right. And it kind of puts the ideas of revolution to these creatures. There's also be, almost be like, let's liberate the orcs plotline in a Lord of the Rings uh, story. So um, I found it very satisfying. Um, it's definitely the first part of, you know, probably a multi-season arc in this setting. Um, it ends with an exclamation point as all these television Vision series tend to do the return of a character from the original series. I won't say which. Um, there's like three. You can guess which ones they are. <laughs> um, but I thought it was great. If you like the first Castlevania, I think you'll definitely enjoy this. Um, and if you're into like French history or just people who like try to take the vampire motif and put it in different settings, something that George R. R. Martin has done himself, taking it to um, you know the Cajun South here in America. Um, I think it's a very interesting on all those fronts, and I think you'd enjoy it. That's great. I'll definitely have to watch it. And yeah, the French Revolution makes for a perfect uh, backdrop for vampires because their their connection to the aristocracy. That's actually what uh, George does early on in Favorite Dream. One character, uh, his dad was a, a French aristocrat, and then was was killed uh, uh, shortly thereafter, uh, shortly after the revolution. And so this character had to kind of to run and uh, learn how to be a vampire on their own. And yeah, I love using using the the age of of uh, immortal mythological creatures to kind of weave in real history like that. I I always love that. So what about uh, what about games? What did you play this year? I know we both played some Zelda. Okay, yes, we definitely did Zelda. And once again, I'm going to refer you to my brother, my captain, my podcast. Yes, indeed. Uh, me and Emily actually had to do two episodes about uh, Tears of the Kingdom. Um, I recommend you check that out. Emily specifically has a great uh, angle on these games, especially from a Tolkien-esque standpoint. So I'm not going to belabor that point, but, you know, we were talking about movies and it was great to finally have a year where we were free of Star Wars and Marvel and all that. But now we're going to talk about Star Wars and Marvel and I'm going to talk <laughs> about them in conjunction because two of my favorite games this year were Star Wars Jedi Survivor and Marvel Spider-Man 2 for the Sony PlayStation 5. These are both continuations of games from 2017, 2018, Jedi Fallen Order and the original Spider-Man. Um, these are both kind of open world games, but they're kind of their own thing. The Jedi Survivor is more like a Souls-like, like Elden Ring, which I talked about last year. Um, so it's very combat driven. It's very, you know, time your sword parries, um, learn different lightsaber stances, which is really cool. Um, they obviously work in like things like the double blade that Darth Maul uses. They even bring in the cross guard that, uh, Adam Driver's Kylo Ren had in the sequels, which was possibly the coolest part of the sequels in retrospect. <laughs> agreed, um, agreed. But, but it's a, it's a great Star Wars story. And I, other than Andor, it's maybe the most satisfying story from Star Wars I've seen in kind of the Disney era. Um, in the first game, Cal Kestis, who is played by 
the ginger from Shameless, who has also been in plenty of other stuff. Um, I forget his name. Mm-hmm. Um, I always want to say the other guy's name, Jeremy Allen White, who was from The Bear. Um, but no, this is the other guy. Um, he is he was not much of a character in the first game, but in this one, he is a much better character. Like he's more fully rounded, and you know maybe some of that's just from the narrative arc he went through in the first game. Um, but his performance is up to uh, snuff. Um, and they introduce a great cast of Star Wars aliens and droids in this. Um, there's a Scottish slug alien that's like yay high, um, who's named <laughs> Scuva Stev, um, and he's basically a fisherman, and you try to find him on different planets, and he'll teach you about new fish, which will get you, you know, new gear and experience and all that. Um, there's a character called Turgle, who's kind of like a frog alien thing that's really cute, that's always getting in trouble. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's really great. Um, and then it does all the things you want a Star Wars game to do. The lightsaber action is very satisfying. Uh, Lord Vader does make an appearance, just like he did in the first game. Um, very emotionally affecting moment. Definitely setting up for a trilogy. Definitely recommend it if you like st- um, Star Wars. And one thing I'll say about this and the Spider-Man game, which I'll talk about in a minute, is both games are extremely accessible um, in terms of like they are made to be easy to play. Um, they have great difficulty sliders where you can you know crank it up, where you have to time your lightsabers thrust perfectly or else you're going to get killed or you can be like i mostly just want to experience the story i don't really want to get fucked up or die all that much totally allows you to do that as well so if the game is a little too hard for you and it is not a easy game um, you can easily just wind it down Um, both games also include things where you can skip uh, skip over like quick time events where you have to like button mash things in quick succession which could be hard with people with disabilities so you can just kind of skip that it just turns into like a story cinematic so you can enjoy the experience of the game still get some of the satisfaction of um, lightsabering and web slinging um, and you know you still enjoy it without having that difficult level or that learning curve so i like that games are investing resources into making themselves more accessible and that also includes things with like lighting and frame rate uh people who are colorblind um both of these studios are doing a lot of great stuff on that front um with spider-man also like i said a sequel to the 2018 game um if you saw any of the advertisement it was built around the symbiote suit um Mm -hmm. which would become venom um you know a lot of people who are familiar with spider-man are familiar with that story and um, these games aren't trying to like reinvent the Spider-Man wheel. Like in the first game, Peter Parker starts working for his like mentor, Doctor Octavius, and you kind of know where that's going, right? Like <laughs> no, no one needs to be well, told it's gonna where be it's fine. going. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and this is the same way. As soon as mm-hmm. the, the symbiote suit is en- uh, entered into the story, you kind of know where it's going. There are some twists on the way, like who exactly Venom is was not like who I anticipated going into the game and they play with who who's it going to be who's going to become Venom in this um so that's really cool um they also bring in Craven um from uh Craven's Last Hunt most famously he's one of my favorite Spider-Man villains um they do a lot of great stuff with that um one thing I really liked about both of these games is um they engage with I, I don't know how to quite phrase it but kind of the darker side of each of the characters and that's kind Mm -hmm. of inherent into the stories because obviously with Star Wars and Cal Kestis if you're a Jedi the dark side of the force is there and there are times emotional moments where Cal feels like he is being taken over by the dark side because of his anger of his rage and you also get a huge power boost when that happens um likewise in um Spider-Man 2, when the symbiote suit is really starting to take over Peter's mind and like his actions and he's becoming more hostile and violent, um, but you also get more powerful in the gameplay. Um, I really like that because, you know, it's, it's again, form and function, right? This is something yes. that's happening in the story, but it's also being reflected in how you play the game. And to see that kind of happen in both of these games where your main protagonist is kind of 
veering towards the evil side or kind of breaking bad at various points. Um, I thought that was fantastic. Um, the Spider-Man 2 also had a pretty fresh take on Venom. Um, he still looks and sounds like Venom that we all know and love, <laughs> but they actually made uh, his character kind of more like the Hulk, where he's more like picking up guys and throwing them at people and just like a more destructive force of nature than, um, you know, maybe the ones you're familiar with from the comics. And uh, the last thing I'll say is, while, you know, Peter Parker is the driving narrative of the game, um, the real heart of it is Miles Morales. You do get uh-huh. to play as both Spider-Man and you're, the game does a great job of making making sure you're switching between both of them, that you're playing as both of them, you're leveling up both of them. So it's not like, oh, I want to spend all my time as Peter, and then all of a sudden Miles is underleveled. Um, they do a great job of making sure both characters have something to do. And in the end, it is Miles who is the one who has to bring Peter back from that cliff, from the dark side, um, from going full Venom mode. Um, and that becomes really rewarding um, from a character level. It brings back some of the villains from the first game. Those, those characters end up having rewarding arcs. Um, I think the thing I'll say about these two Spider-Man games is they understand the entire cast of Spider-Man characters about as well as anything I've ever seen. That means the Aunt Mays, the J. Jonah Jamesons, the Robbie Robertsons, all those side characters, all the villains. It doesn't feel like anyone's just thrown in there so someone can say it's like oh my that's electro it everyone is there for a reason they serve a purpose in the story um and with such a sprawling you know a som- ensemble of characters to choose from um they pick their spots well there's still major villains from the spider-man mythos that they haven't even introduced in these first two games um so spider-man 2 uh star wars jedi survivor honestly the best things that star wars and marvel have done in the last couple of years Except Andor, of course. Uh, so if, you, if you're kind of looking for something but not feeling the love from Ahsoka or the Marvels, this might be a way to get that fix. And again, it's super accessible. Um, they're made to be people, they're games that are made for people who are fans of these things who might not be avid gamers. So uh, don't let the fact that they are in game medium uh, discourage you. Yeah, that's what reimmerse you and what you love about it. Chloe's been playing the Spider Man. That's it's a I love watching her swing around the city, and mm-hmm. I, w- I would just be collecting all the backpacks. That's all I'd be doing. I just like collecting tons of things. That's a, that's always just my gaming instinct. You can have the big the big missions in the epic story, but I want I want seventy five things in a certain mm-hmm. area, and I have to get them all. That's yeah, that's that- that's all I'd be doing. And there's a lot of those here too. Um, and there's a lot of actually fun ones in um. Star Wars Jedi Survivor as oh, yeah. well. Um, specifically, um, you can collect various haircuts and uh, facial hairs. Um, like and they, a lot of them are mimicking, you know, iconic Star Wars haircuts and facial hairs. Um, so you can go the full Ian McGregor, Obi-Wan Kenobi with uh, flowing hair and big beard. Um, you have Luke Skywalker's mop cut from A New Hope, um, that farm boy look. So, um, you know, not major customization, but it is cool that you can kind of, you know, kind of make the character your own, um, which helps, you know, as you're kind of telling your own story, you go through these things in your own order. Um, it does help you feel like it's a unique experience and not the same one everyone else is having who's playing the game. I got a cat. I got to collect every ugly haircut, every <laughs> yes. every Luke Skywalker that just isn't quite right. <laughs> so many of those. And then there's this thing I've heard about called um, I don't know how to pronounce this. Put pa pa podcasts pod pod podcasts podcasts. It's it's the latest craze. I'm hearing all about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, anyone who knows me knows I listen to more podcasts than I probably any other medium that I engage <laughs> in. Um, you know, occupational hazard, I guess, mm-hmm. might be the reason. Um, Mm -hmm. But there are two I specifically want to shout out. 
Um, the first one is one of the most popular podcasts on the planet, so I'm not going to belabor it too much, but it is called Blowback um, by uh, Brendan James and Noah Cohen. Um, they released season four this year. Um, these are 10 episode seasons that are heavily researched into the concept of American imperialism. Um, for those that are not familiar, Blowback is essentially the consequences of Americans doing stuff abroad, whether it's you know, fucking around in Iraq or Afghanistan, Cuba, wherever. Um, ultimately, a lot of those things blow back and affect us here in America. The most obvious example, of course, is 9-11 as a result of, you know, decades of uh, mucking around in the Middle East and with Islamic nations. Um, this uh, season four was about Afghanistan. Um, it's a spiritual successor to their first season, which was about Iraq. Those are like the two big poles of the war on terror, kind of like the defining foreign policy of everyone who's been listening to this podcast, I assume. Um, it's kind of driven everything. It kind of changed the uh -huh. world. Um, so it's great to get that. It's very well researched. It goes all the way back to like the 19th century when the Russian Empire and Great Britain were playing the great games with uh, British India and um, Imperial Russia, you know, bumping up on each other. And that, you know, disputed zone was basically what became Afghanistan. Um, it goes through the British control of the region. Eventually, um, you know, Indian independence had a you know big effect on Afghanistan. And then eventually uh, the Soviet invasion in the 80s and then later the American invasion does a great job of laying it out um, does a great job of blaming the American imperialists who are mostly at fault um, not going to lie about it it is definitely a socialist podcast by a bunch of socialists with a Marxist reading of history um, but it is good and they um, you know they tell a straight up narrative like the first five episodes are basically everything up to the uh, Afghanistan invasion in 2001 um, I think it happened in October 2001 a month after 9-11 um, and then the last five are about you know, basically from there through the Obama years, through Trump and now Biden, um, through the withdrawal. Um, they get a lot of great um, guests, including, you know, the first woman uh, a PM in Afghanistan is one of the guests they get. Um, they get Seymour Hirsch, one of the great American journalists and uh, historians. Um, he does a full guest episode uh, in their bonus episodes on it. So um, I highly recommend it. They released all the episodes. Uh, you could buy all the episodes in August. Um, and then just a couple of weeks ago, they started dripping out um, this, um, you know, the episodes one by one for people who want to listen for free um, on their podcast app of choice. So that is blowback. However, the last one I want to talk about is I will say easily the thing I fell in love with the most this year of any medium. Um, anyone who listens to Nauticast knows I'm a big history guy or I kind of became a history guy. Um, fun story about that. I figured... Um, taking over this role at Nauticast. There was a history guy here in my shoes before me. I figured I should kind of bone up on my history. And all of a sudden, I was like, whoa, I really like learning about this stuff. So here we are. I am here to recommend a <laughs> History of the 20th Century podcast, which is done by a guy named Mark Painter, who is actually a retired Pennsylvania congressman. Um, and I looked at his Wikipedia, and it looks like he has good progressive bona fides. So... Um, that's good. Um, so the history of the 20th century is exactly what it sounds like. It's basically the story from 1901, you know, progressing through the 20th century. Um, he is nowhere near done. He is somewhere near the end of World War II right now, and I am not there. Um, but I love this podcast. Um, I love how he has it structured, and he's talked about this, like... He, he wants a podcast and no shade to us where the first thing you hear and the last thing you hear are like relevant podcast information. So he usually opens his episode with a clip or a quote or something relevant to the topic at hand. And then he ends every episode with a Columbo style. Oh, and one more thing. And a lot of times it will just be building off a point on it. Sometimes it'll be like 
Um, there's an episode on the Boer Wars, which was fight between uh, the English and the Dutch in South Africa, like around the 1890s, 1900. And he'll be like, oh, and one more thing. There was a Indian lawyer there who was helping along and running ambulance services. Uh, his name was Mohandas Gandhi. We'll keep an eye on him because I think he'll <laughs> pop up later. So it's a lot of fun teasing stuff. And it's obviously playing with what is, you know, most people's common knowledge of the history. Um, but what really sings about his podcast is he is, he's obviously telling the major things like the rise of like Teddy Roosevelt and then World War One and the Great Depression and now World War Two and the German Kaisers and Hitler and all that big stuff. But episode five is where are we with astrophysics right now? Where are we in 1905? And he gets into Einstein's uh, special theory of relativity. He wasn't quite at the general theory yet. Um, there are episodes that are dedicated for um, the race to the North Pole or the race to the South Pole, both things that were done or reached in the 20th century. And he talks about that. Um, there's episodes dedicated to the rise of jazz, the rise of Bauhaus architecture and modern architecture. And like, it's so well researched. And it's one of those things where like, they're all great on its own, but it's how all those things intersect with the politics um like it's one thing to learn like oh in the 1800s um we started developing cures for like malaria and yellow fever and all that stuff but it's a little more poignant when it's like oh yeah that's because they were trying to do an imperialism in the congo and everyone was dying so that's why they were focused on curing those diseases and not other diseases and stuff like that um, the host also has a great sense of humor. Um, he's really kind of plugged into pop culture, despite being a 60-year-old man. Um, anyone who's familiar with um, how the Chinese nationalists turned on the Communist Party in the 1920s, um, he said uh, General Ke uh, Chiang Kai-shek felt about communists the same way that Anakin Skywalker feels about sand, <laughs> um, which I think is just a fantastic way to describe it. I think that's something that's you know a way for us to get into it. Um, I've learned a lot from the podcast. It's like I said, it's expansive. It's in depth. Um, I feel like I have a better shape of the world because of it. Um, even things that are happening now in the world. Um, he has episodes about how that all started back, you know, 100, 110 years ago. Um, everything from things happening in Ukraine to Palestine, all that stuff that all has historical roots. Um, and I think this is a great way to kind of start getting into that. And like I said, it's fun. If you're not super into the politics, it's not very long before he gets into an episode on the music scene or opera or ballet. Um, and you just start thinking about things in ways that you never really thought about. Like, uh, you know, opera was big in the 1800s and the early 1900s. And you're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I wonder why, why, why? It's like, oh, yeah, we didn't have voice amplification. So no one could sing and be heard above instruments or crowds. So the reason we had the rise of bands and singers in the 1920s and 30s is because radio was invented and like all that kind of stuff. So um, it's been informative. It's a lot of fun. It's kind of like I look forward, like I'm listening to this episode this day and I'm clearing my schedule out because I really want to know about What's the next? Oh, Night of the Long Knives? Mm. Well, either which way, I'm sure it'll be a great episode and mm -hmm. I will learn a lot from it. It'll keep you running. That's great. Yeah, I've heard great things about it. I'll definitely have to check it out. I love hearing about uh, different episode structures and how people uh, set up and, and seed and pay off info like that. And yeah, I love, I love reading uh, the history of politics in connection with the history of arts and technology and realizing how much they, they always influence each other without even, you know, without even the people involved being consciously aware of it and being able to having not only the knowledge, but the perspective to, to map those insights, I think is something really special. So that's yeah. great. 
And on my side, we've plugged it before, but I just want to throw in one plug for one of our, our fellow ASWAF podcasts, Learned Hands, with our friends Mary mm-hmm. and Clint. Uh, if you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely have to. They're just some of the best and funniest people doing this little thing we do. I uh, loved Mary and Clint for a long time. They're just two of my favorite people. But uh, every episode of theirs gets better. Their latest one, uh, just a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. on Deron Martell, was really good, really thoughtful about a character that doesn't get uh, a lot of attention because he's not actually in the story that much and only came up in the last couple books. So that was great stuff. But even going back to uh, when they had on Shiloh, like we did, uh, but they talked about A Knight's Tale. That was a great episode. Uh, even their uh, their succession stuff is great too since we're all doing succession episodes their succession stuff is great so if you've you know heard us mention them or if you've heard other people mention them but you haven't uh, taken the time that should be on your list for 2024 for sure yeah no it's definitely one of the best podcasts around i love getting that three-hour podcast at the end of every month yes. um, the Dorrit episode's great because you know they frame their episodes as trying to be like a legal take on what's happening but you know kind of that doesn't always apply to the Dornish plot per se, but it's actually looking into like what are the actual legal plays involved with Doran's master plan. Um, and it also just like kind of what's going on, like what do the water garden symbolize? It was just a great conversation. So um, they also have some great episodes on Andor too, or at least one. Uh, so I'd also recommend that as well. And then there's books. I guess we still read books. I mean, do we? I guess I read A Song of Ice and Fire, technically. I guess that's that's what we're here to do a lot of the time. But but when we're not doing that, when we're not uh, not plugged into Westeros, what, what were you reading this year? Uh, I'm sure it won't surprise everyone that I read a lot of history books. Um, mm-hmm. I think in the year 2023, I read more books from the 1870s than I did from 2023. Um, I'm not going to bore you with my history books. Um, I am on the website Storygraphs, where I log all my books. Um because I don't think anyone wants to hear me talk about the books I read about the changing social causes of 1840s America. Well, However, I don't know. I have to do a whole episode on it now. <laughs> we could. We could. Um, I definitely could. Um, but I will recommend <laughs> two things that I feel like uh, brush up on the Aswaf uh, aesthetic or storytelling uh, style. Um, the first is the First Law book series by Joe Abercrombie. Um, I know our friend Ruben talked about it when he joined us way back in, I think, Aria 6. Yes, um, indeed. The Trial by Combat episode. Um, it's uh, kind of a fantasy. Uh, it is a fantasy story, its own fantasy world. Um, and it is is nine books properly. It is kind of a trilogy, then three one-offs, and then another trilogy. I'm currently in the kind of three one-offs in the middle. I'm on the third one. Um, the first, I'll just kind of say the first one kind of brings together a fellowship that ends up going on a journey. Um, I would say kind of like the theme or the idea here is that what if Gandalf was a lot worse than, (laughs) um, he actually is. Maybe he's more (laughs) of a manipulator and kind of maybe more of an agent for bad than good. Um, that's kind of something that's underwriting it. Um, I will say book four, the first of, um, the three standalone stories, um, best served cold was my favorite of it. I'm only highlighting that because they are supposedly making a movie about that with Rebecca Ferguson cast as the main role in it. Um, so that has a lot of potential to be something very good. I hope it's very good. Um, but um, I've been enjoying it. Um, it's not something I kind of sink my, sink my teeth into the same way I do A Song of Ice and Fire or Lord of the Rings. But it is something that I find as very enjoyable fantasy to read that's kind of playing on the same ideas and tropes that we see in those other things I talk about. Um, and then I'll also throw out the manga I've been reading, which is Berserk, um, which is one that started at like late 80s and ran mostly through the 90s. Um, the author, Kentaro Miura, sadly passed away, I think, five or six years ago. So it stands unfinished. Um, but it is 
kind of the same milieu of aesthetic, like medieval fantasy, where it's, you know, mostly a medieval setting, but there's obviously magic and other mysticism at play. Um, at first, it starts as the story of just its protagonist, Guts, um, who is basically like the prototype of every like 90s and 2000s, like male protagonist you'll ever see <laughs> there's a bit of cable from the x-men in him cloud from final fantasy 7 there's definitely some solid snake in there um you know he's got one eye he's got one mechanical arm that turns into a gun um and then he's got a big fucking sword that's like the most notable thing about guts but over the course of the stories he does um what's it called collect a great ensemble of characters that are just as important as he is. Um, there's heavy themes of, you know, kind of the nobility versus the clergy versus the common folk versus the peasants, you know, something we see, you know, kind of a triangulation we see a lot in A Song of Ice and Fire specifically. Um, so I think it's very poignant in that. It is wicked and gnarly at points. Um, and then the artwork is just fantastic. The pencil work is some of the best I've ever seen. Um, so those kind of scratch, like, I want to get into something that's like A Song of Ice and Fire, but that I'm not going to sit there and want to make three-hour podcasts about every other week. Um, so it kind of scratches that itch in much the same vein. I have uh, I read just a little bit of Berserk, and I drifted away for some reason. I think I was just reading like three or four things at once and, yes. and got more into something else. But I love what I read, and I've uh, everyone who's ever described it to me has made it sound just like the best thing ever. So I definitely got to go through it. For me, I read a lot of different things this year. I read American Prometheus, the Oppenheimer mm -hmm. biography, and kind of the build-up to that. That was just great, just fantastically researched. Uh, and like the movie, throws a lot of information at you and moves along at a really, really great breathless clip. Killers of the Flower Moon is, I think, is an even better book that I also read in the in the build up to the movie. <laughs> uh, what an American illiterate I am! But no, uh, it uh, no that's that I really recommend if you enjoyed the movie or even if you didn't, because I think it's a really sad, devastating read, especially at the end. At the end of the book, very specifically, kind of zooms out to show everyone involved that it didn't even touch on uh, previously. It's really, really good. Uh, one older book I read just because someone recommended it to me was called uh, John's Wife by Robert Coover. It's this novel about a set in a small town and it just kind of moves through each character and accumulates details about their lives and resentments and past. And then they'll mention another character and you kind of zoom into them. And it just it keeps moving very fluidly through the characters. And it at first has a kind of very sunny tone. And then they, you start getting hints of things going wrong or hints of stuff that's getting repressed. And every character gets gets a name and a backstory except John's wife, who's kind of at the center of things and is only ever described glancingly. Like you hear about a lot of people being in love with her, but she's never physically described. Mm -hmm. So you get the sense of all these people with these lives, they're not dealing with kind of projecting it all onto her. And so really good read. What else? Oh, I've been reading I've been reading more graphic novels this year. I went through uh, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which I never had actually great, done before. Yeah. That was great. Uh, great mix of, of trippy art and, and brutal, brutal yes. uh, bone crunching art. Uh, I read uh, Odyssey, the uh, uh, gender and race flipped version of the Odyssey that mm -hmm. came out a while back. That's that is a beautiful piece of work. Uh, obviously, you know. If familiar with the general arc of the story, but uh, the the art is just is the the selling point. It's just gorgeous uh, colors and a sense of movement that's really dynamic and beautiful. So I definitely put that on your list if you haven't read that. And I think that is that is it for 2023. There's still stuff that I want to see that I haven't. Uh, there's a Ferrari Michael Mann's new movies coming out. Mm -hmm, probably mm -hmm. gonna drag my I say drag. Probably gonna take my father-in-law to that. As I had that specific as like it's that's gonna be a Christmas movie. movie. Yeah, and get away with that one. And uh, and zone of interest the the movie about uh, Auschwitz 
which is getting very, very polarizing reactions, and I'm very interested to see it for that reason, uh, by the director who did Under the Skin with Scarlett Johansson like 10 years ago. Yeah, no, I'm really interested in Ferrari. I am not someone that's overly into cars, but um, I don't Same think... Here. I don't think cars sound any better than they do in Michael Mann movies. I think they just like guns and cars are just so exactly. much cooler in Michael Mann movies. <laughs> exactly. uh, I might just go watch Collateral after this just for that fact. Hell yeah. Uh, um, so I'm very excited about that. And I'm also I'm a big Adam Driver fan. I think he is probably one of the better actors going this these days. Agreed. Um, and so I'm excited to see him in the titular role, I guess. Uh, but um, I think I've mostly knocked out all the stuff I want to watch for this year. Uh, May, December is definitely something I want to get to, especially after all the discussions about it and after your uh, glowing praise for it. Um, but uh, somehow I've gotten to most of the movies. I do want to see uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. I thought yes. that was, I heard that was beautifully animated. Um, I try to get to uh, animated movies as well. Um, I'll give a quick shout out. I did enjoy Across the Spider-Verse as well this year. That was one of my favorite movies. I like um, that I thought too. It was, um, absurdly well animated oh, um, yeah. some columns with the story but ultimately it was a very satisfying movie experience so agreed um, and that's one where i'm like you know the stories can be whatever i just want to pause every five seconds just to <laughs> watch with my mouth open and what the animators did yeah that was uh that was good stuff uh real quick anything you're looking forward to in 2024 well, we're finally going to get Dune 2, I say, with a fingers crossed. No, they're finally going to put it in theaters after delaying forever. I uh, really like the first one as far as uh, large-scale uh, sci-fi fantasy filmmaking in recent years. I definitely think that was one of the better ones. And I'm just I'm just uh, bemused at the idea of an of a ongoing Dune franchise cinematic universe because this has become a cliche, but those books get just so weird and so long and big. And did I say weird? If like, you know, I, uh, I have a, a soft spot for my, for my big crazy directors. And I, I don't usually think of Denis Villeneuve like that. Cause he's a very, like very kind of controlled, like he's, mm -hmm. he doesn't seem like a guy who goes uh, out of control and is, is wild. And, but like if, if, if he's, if he's managing to pull off like that for the rest of his career, that will, that will be a hell of a thing. I can't wait for the three hour God Emperor movie to hit IMAX screens. Uh, yeah, no, I'm excited. I, I like the first Dune quite a bit. I'm excited to see this. I think we're on baby Alia watch, uh, just to see if she's going to show up and in what she version. Better. <laughs> They, yeah, uh, we see her, but I hope that they are just holding her back from the trailer because they want everyone to <laughs> to lose their mind in the theater. One can hope. Uh, I definitely want to see it, like you say, go into Dune Messiah and the future books, just because it gets so much weirder and it is it's going to ask the audiences to do a lot, especially when they're kind of sucked into this kind of like male protagonist, you know, hero's journey kind of introduction to him and then see where this actually is going. <laughs> Dune, um, the I first Dune book is easily the most accessible part of Dune. Mm -hmm. And from there, it goes in strange and really interesting directions, but not accessible. And uh, if you liked Jason Momoa and you were sad that he died in the first one, I have really good news about what happens <laughs> to that character. I, I don't know if he has any clue if anyone sat Jason Momoa down and explained to him, look, there's turns out there's like a, a bajillion Duncan Idaho, so... <laughs> The money machine, oh, yeah. she is turned I, on. Oh, that yeah. one, I'm yeah. looking forward to that and uh, and Furiosa. We've only had, you know, the one trailer so far. Uh, but I'm uh, I'm definitely going to be there for that. Yeah, uh, George Miller has me at hello. He, exactly. If he's putting out a movie, I will see it, whether it's Babe 3 or Mad Max 7. I would I love a Babe there. 3 so much. The same, <laughs> Babe, same. Babe 2 is, uh, as far as uh, kids' movies, non-Miyazaki category, Babe 2 is, is near the top of that list. Absolutely. <laughs> 
anything um, else for you? What else is coming in 2024? The, the thing is, I don't really know what else is coming out in 2024. <laughs> I'm so obviously excited for uh, House of the Dragon. Mm-hmm. Um, that should be a lot of fun. Oh, you know it. Um, and uh, tentatively optimistic, um, there is a War of the Rohirrim anime supposedly coming out next that exists. year. Yeah. Um, and the only reason I am going to say it here is because I saw the showrunner on Twitter say, yes, it is coming out next year. Um, I like the idea of doing Lord of the Rings as animated, and especially if it has more of an anime aesthetic, that'd be great. Um, I hear Brian Cox might be the voice of Helm Hammerhand, which would just be fantastic to That would to be the to. best thing to ever happen. Uh, and they're supposedly bringing back Miranda Otto as well, um, possibly just as a narrator or voiceover. I don't know exactly how they're breaking the story or what it is. Um, I do think it is kind of the founding of the Kingdom of Rohan when it kind of split off from the rest of the managed kingdoms, I guess. Uh-huh. Um, but that is something that I'm saying here because I'm into Lord of the Rings, but also it's like the only other thing I know that's coming out next year. Um, there's no clear Barbenheimer on the radar as far as I can tell, but things No, I'm sure they'll sure they'll try to recreate it as best they can. I know um, Paul Thomas Anderson has a new movie coming out eventually. I don't know if that's going to be ready in time for next year, but there's uh, it's rumors it's going to be another Thomas Pynchon adaptation. He already did Inherit oh, Vice. Great. He might mm-hmm. be adapting Vineland, and it looks like Leo is on board with whatever it turns out to be but who knows whether that'll be uh, uh in time for next year and yeah i keep forgetting that lord of the rings uh, things exist that thing exists and even though you know i i instinctively flinch away from the idea of just doing more lord of the rings things just because that that concept specifically is is strange enough and small scale enough that i i hope it works yeah it's not i don't think we're going to venture into rings of power territory with it exactly they'll just kind of stay aside as its own thing um and hopefully the animation is a great medium to bring it to life in a new way that isn't just recreating peter jackson's aesthetic totally uh and you know i really liked uh, rohan uh through the lens of peter jackson and company mm-hmm. in two towers and return of the king but uh new blood is always welcome there and there's a lot of good uh stories about the rohirrim their kind of their their stuff is some of the more um exciting and just emotional you know they're always underdogs and you feel for mm-hmm. them so i think that is going to wrap us up for our year-end episode for 2023 uh, thank you so much for listening as always if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice we really appreciate that it helps new listeners find us you can shoot us an email at notacast asoiaf at gmail.com and you can find us on twitter blue sky instagram etc at notacast asoiaf and you can find me at twitter and blue sky at poor quentin And you can find me at all those places at Manuclear Bomb. So coming up next uh, on the Nauticast, my uh, first Empire on Empire Strikes Back as far as our ongoing Star Wars coverage. That is out right now for all of our $5 and above patrons. Next week is going to be our next Fever Dream episode for all of our $5 and above patrons covering Chapter 28 of George R. R. Martin's 1982 vampire novel. And we will be back with A Song of Ice and Fire for Arya Stark. Remember her? Barely. Arya? Arya? Anyone? Bueller? She's still in the story. Been a long time since we had an Arya chapter, but yeah, we're going to be checking back in with her and Sandra Clegane in A Storm of Swords, Arya 12. It's a really cheery episode, so you might want to bring a drink for that one. Exactly. Bring several drinks. You know, I would keep your drinks away from Sandor if he sees them. (laughs) You're not going to have a drink for very long. So uh, thank you again for listening, and we will see you all in 2024.